start turning to John chapter 6. I think, so, so we talked about this and we were kind of looking through this series like, hey, how do we want to lay these out? We were originally thinking we'll preach X number of sermons and then we'll stop because it'll be time for Easter and everybody stops whatever they're doing and they preach a special message on Easter and they change it up. But it just kind of worked out that the way we kind of organize these things, the way we're going to end this What We Believe series is with two things that we believe that are perfectly represented on both Passion Week this week and Easter next week. So, so it just kind of, it, we, we always read these, and it just so happened that kind of moments, but we really do believe God lined all these things up for us to be teaching in this order at this time. Because we're talking about communion this week, and I think communion is the perfect thing for us to be talking about this week because it is Passion Week. It is the week that we end up looking back and remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And so I think it's perfect that we talk about the practice that the church has had for thousands of years now where we look back and remember what it is that Christ did on our behalf. We look back and we're reminded how it is that he served us, how it is that he loved us. And so we're going we're gonna to look at it from, I think, a little bit of a different angle at the beginning. Uh, we'll get into the what we believe a little bit about communion in just a little bit. Um, but you've heard us say this before, and I just want to reiterate this idea. Um, all of Scripture, all of the Bible is about Jesus. It may not have his name written in there, but everything that came before Jesus was pointing to Jesus, was saying, hey, this guy's coming. This is what everything is about. And everything since then points us right back to Jesus. It's all for Jesus. It's all for the glory of Jesus. It's all because of what Jesus has done, that we're alive, that we are, we are this body of believers. All of these things that we have been talking about for the past few months. All of Scripture is about Jesus. This is true. And from the beginning of the Bible... We've been told that, that we've been pointed in this direction of we have this need for Jesus. We have this need ultimately for a broken Savior. A Savior who, 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 who gives his life on our behalf to, to atone us through his death. That has been from the very beginning. Um, you, you, you're familiar with, with Genesis chapter 3 where we see the fall and we see... We see we see man first disobey God. And we see God kind of start passing out all of these different judgments. This is how you're going to be cursed. This is how you're going to be cursed. This is how you're going to be cursed. All of these things are going to be hard for you. All of these things are going to be painful for you. All these things are going to be difficult for you. But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, it says, And the Lord made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. It's just one little verse where we get this moment, this picture of, but God wasn't done with just, done with them finished because he's passing out the curses and now he's angry and he's leaving. That was, never, that was never who God was. Yes, he was angry. Yes, he was going to judge them for their sin. Yes, that meant that they were going to have a more difficult life and that the ground was going to fight Adam every time he tried to work it and that it was going to be painful for Eve as she had children and, and all of these different things that God had said. But in that moment, God also showed them a little picture of grace. And that picture of grace was that he gave them clothes to cover, to cover them so they didn't have to feel ashamed anymore of their, of their nakedness, of their sin. Right? We've talked about this in the past where, where when, when Adam and Eve 
Before the fall, they were, they were living together, they were naked, and they were unashamed. We've talked about how this is a picture of how they had nothing to hide. There was, there was nothing that had come between them. There was no sin. Everything was perfect. And the moment that sin entered their lives, they immediately went and took leaves and sewed them together, together and covered themselves up because they were ashamed. But, those, but that was just a temporary, they sewed together some leaves just to kind of make a makeshift set of clothes. After God passes out his judgment on them, the first thing he does is he goes and he kills an animal. We haven't seen this yet, so this might be the first time they'd experienced something dying. He goes and kills an animal and covers them with that animal's skin. That animal lost its life that way they might be covered. That way their sin might be covered. That way they might feel wrapped up and protected by God again. He's giving them this this small little picture of grace that's coming as something is being broken, as something is giving its life. So since the time of the fall, we've known that we were in need. And we've known, and we've seen this through things like the way the the ceremonial law was set up under Moses, that, that, that there were all these animal sacrifices that were meant to cover the sins of the people. But, but none of those things were ever complete. All of those things had to be repeated over and over and over and over and over again. It never, it never fixed the problem. It only continued to remind the people that there was a problem. It only continued to remind the people that they were sinful and that death was the thing that was required as a response to sin, as a result of our sin. We were in need of covering. We were, we were now in need of, of God to sustain us or we would die. And in a sense, this is kind of the focus of the conversation in John 6. So if you're in John 6, uh, turn to verse 25 um, just to kind of set the stage for what's happening in John chapter 6. Jesus has just miraculously fed 5,000 people with just next to nothing. Right? He took, he took the amount of food, he took less than the amount of food that we have on a Sunday morning, and he fed, you know, like a tenth of the population of, no, probably like a fifth of the population of Johnson City, right? Pretty amazing, right? So he's just done this. He's fed them to the point that they were full, to the point they couldn't eat anymore, and they had to pick up all these leftovers and gather all these leftovers. And then, and then Jesus leaves, and he goes across the lake, and the people follow him. Right? They, they go walking around the lake and they find him. They're like, hey, you're here. We're really excited to see you. And that's kind of where we pick up in chapter 6, verse 25. So they've just found him. It says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? They knew he was going to be there. When did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. They said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. 
Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We'll go ahead and stop there. So the first thing that I want to talk about with regard to communion is that Jesus started teaching communion before anybody even understood that he was here to die. Right? Jesus was already planting the seeds, this idea of, of his being broken and that being what sustains us far more than just a good hearty meal that we can eat and then we'll be hungry again in like three or four hours or like 15 minutes if you're me. Right. So so he's so so he's performed this giant miracle, this amazing thing they've gotten to eat. Now they're like, let's go find him again. We think he's awesome. Maybe he'll buy lunch again today. That would be really cool. So so they pack up, they move and they're like, hey, how's it going, man? We didn't know you were here. Fancy running into you here. And He's like, I know why you're here. You want me to make you food again? And they're like, he's like, you, you don't need food. You need a savior. You don't, need, you don't need to just eat another meal. You need to have, have yourself made whole and made clean and made complete. You need, you need to be redeemed and restored by, by, by a Savior who's going to welcome you back into the family of God. And they're like, well, great. That sounds cool. What kind of sign can you give? You know, just, just thinking, just, you know, and this just came to me. Back in the past, one of those signs was people gave us food. Maybe you could do that. That would be great. So even in their response to his, you need a savior, they're like, well, does that savior buy snacks? Right? They're still thinking very temporarily, very physically. They're not thinking about the long-term needs for salvation. They're not thinking about the fact that, that, that for thousands of years, they've been killing animals just to cover their sin, and that's supposed to remind them that they're wicked and broken and in need of salvation. They completely missed the point on that. And they're like, well, I'm kind of hungry again. So if that could be the sign so that we could know you're that guy, so that we could believe in you, that would be great. And he says, that's not the kind of food. First of all, you're placing too much emphasis on the man who you think gave you the food. First of all, it was God who sustained you. It was God who provided those things. Because, and not because he wanted you to have a good meal, but because he loved you and he wanted to keep you as his people alive. And relying on him and trusting that he was in charge. And so, and so he says this idea, you, you need a different kind of bread. You don't need this, this physical bread. You don't need this meal just to keep you alive for one more day or two more days. What you need is you need the Son of Man to welcome you in and save you. And, and what we know, this side of the cross, is that he start, what he's teaching them is because he starts getting into some weird stuff, and we're not going to read all this. If you eat my flesh and drink my blood, we're not talking about eating people's skin. No. But, that, but, but what he starts teaching them is, what you need is me broken and my blood shed. That's what's really going to sustain you in the long term. Not just one more meal, not just one more piece of bread, not just one more cup of something to drink. You can drink that, but you'll still end up, you'll still end up hungry. You'll still end up thirsty. I want you to be satisfied by what I come to offer, by what the Son of Man comes to offer, and that is salvation. 
And for that, right? Because he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The point that he's trying to make is, I came to be broken like a piece of bread. I came to pour out my blood for you so that you can come to me and you don't need anything else ever again. From an eternal sense. You don't need anything else. And so Jesus was teaching about communion in sort of a subtle way before anybody realized it. Now I think it's really important that that when he gets into that weird stuff about like eating his flesh and drinking his blood, there's there's been this long-standing debate with regard to communion for thousands of years in the church where it's like, so when we eat the bread, does it actually become the flesh of Jesus? And when we drink that, does it actually become his blood? And there was a lot of debate over that for a long time. We don't think that. I don't think I've ever noticed that the bread, when I'm eating it, starts tasting a little bit fleshy. Everybody's making weird faces at me now. Sorry. I probably, that's probably too much. But, but the whole point that Jesus is trying to set up is this metaphor of, you need me to be broken, my blood to be poured out on your behalf so that you can be saved. So when he does institute, when he does institute the teaching of communion, later on, right before he dies, when he's teaching them about communion, we're going to read a little bit of a different account of it from 1 Corinthians. If you want to start turning to 1 Corinthians 11 now, you can. Um, but when he does teach this, the point that I want us to get is that communion is a picture of Christ's death, not the actual presence of his body. So, he's, he, yes, in John chapter 6, he's using the picture of replacing a meal with himself. But what he really is talking about is we need to believe that the Son of Man came on our, in our, on our behalf so that he could die, so that we could be saved. So, if you have gotten a chance, 1 Corinthians 11, you have another minute because i got to find it still myself. All right, 1 Corinthians 11. I'm going to read 23 through 32. So this is, this is Paul kind of going back, and he's teaching the Corinthians. He's reminding them what Jesus instituted when he instituted communion, when he started teaching about Lord's Supper. And it says, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So there's a lot of things in there. And I I wanted to use this section because I think when when you just read the original teaching, Jesus gives, here's what I want you to do. But I think Paul gives a little bit more 
detail and emphasis on some of the implications and some of the heart state that we should be in when we approach communion. And I think that's, that's really important. So the first thing he says, he, he, he says, he gave us the bread, he gave us the, he gave us the cup, and he said, this is my body, this is my blood. And again, that brings up this, this does it really mean it's literally him? No, I don't believe, and we don't believe here at CRC that this is literally Jesus. We don't think it becomes him. All we think of with regard to the bread and the cup is that they are a metaphor. They are a metaphor for what Jesus was about to go through when he instituted it. That he was about to literally have his flesh torn and his blood poured out. And he was using these things as a reminder, a saying, don't forget what's about to happen here. You need this reminder. You need to to find yourself thinking back and remembering, this is a thing. (laughs) This is a thing that Jesus went through. He actually had this happen. So I I think that's part of the reason I love that we actually tear off the bread. We actually have a whole loaf today, right? Yeah, good, good. Okay, so this is why I love that we actually tear the bread off because you actually have to grab and, and, and feel the kind of the ripping feel when you're tearing the bread because that really is... A, a, a perfect picture of what Jesus went through. When he was torn, he was broken. His skin was ripped off his back. We can get into all the details if you want to. That might be something worth talking about in, in community group or something, just, just how gruesome and painful his death on the cross was. But, but we tear away from the bread. We tear it away. And, and, and then I think it's, I mean... We use grape juice. We don't use actual wine. We can have a conversation about that too sometime if you want to. But, but those, things, those things, that dark red really does stain pretty good. It's a thing that, that, I mean, you get it on your skin, doesn't come off super easy. Like, I think there's a reason that he's using these as the picture because, because he wants a, to be very vivid when we see these things, when we're taking communion, when we're remembering these things. He wants, because the disciples were going to see it firsthand. But the best that he can do for us is offer us a really clear picture. The best that he can do for us is offer us a really clear picture. So we don't think they become his body. We don't think they actually become his blood. But we do think that they are a perfect metaphor that is meant to cause us to remember exactly what it was that Jesus went through. Be affected. Be moved by what it was that he felt on our behalf. The second thing that I see in here that I think is really important is that I'm going to say it one way, and then I'm going to make it sound like I'm saying something different, but I promise this all kind of connects by the end. Communion is for the saved, and I would even add preferably the baptized, because you're saved, you're baptized. Like, those things just kind of go together. When we get saved, we get baptized. And that's that's us saying, I'm in on this church thing. I'm in. I'm with you. And so taking communion is a thing that we do within the church. It's a thing that we do as people who are remembering what Christ did on our behalf. So, so to be someone who would reject Jesus as their Savior, to be somebody who would not believe in the one, in the Son of Man whom God had sent, right? That was what he said. What must we do to, to have this eternal life, right? And he said, believe in the Son of Man, right? That was John 6. So it wouldn't make sense for, for an unbeliever to take communion, to be reminded of, what it is that Christ did when it wasn't on their behalf, right? So, and he gets into this whole, 
in fact, you're drinking judgment on yourself if you're taking this and you're not saved. And he even gets into, this is why some of you are sick. Even some of you have died, right? He gets into all these things. So what is he saying here? Is he saying, if you're unsaved and you come take communion, you're going to drop dead right there on the spot? No, he didn't say anything that definitive. First of all, he said, this is why some of this is happening. So I have this thought, and, and I, don't, I, can't, I can't say definitively this is what it is, but this is just something that's been kind of rolling around in my mind. It's okay. It's just, it's just a kid without pants. <laughs> so he's cautioning them to not take communion in an unworthy way. Because if you're unsaved and you're taking communion, you're drinking judgment on yourself. Here's what I think this could be talking about. So the gospel is really good news for those who are saved. If you're not saved, the gospel is really bad for you. Can we all kind of agree on that idea? Like, like the truth of the gospel is, if you believe in Jesus, you're saved, but if you don't, you're going to hell. It's not good. That's not good. I'm not trying to say this to scare people who aren't saved. It's just the truth. So at the same time, if we're taking communion as a metaphor, remembering what Jesus did for us, and you as an unsaved person, come and take communion, you're, you're remembering the thing that has condemned you to hell. You're remembering the thing that is representing your complete and utter rejection of your creator. Like, like you're acknowledging, this is a thing that I am being judged for because I don't believe in this. So in a sense, you're, you're drinking judgment on yourself. You're not, you're not making your standing with God any worse you couldn't do that. None of us could do that. We're all equally, equally separated from God and offensive to him because of our sin. So it's not that taking communion in an unworthy way makes you in some way a lower level unsaved person. We, that's not a thing. But what it does do is, is you basically saying, I'm going to come eat this bread and I'm going to come drink this thing that are, pic, that are a perfect picture of how I have rejected this and I'm going to suffer apart from him for the rest of eternity. So what would that mean about the sick and dying? I mean, if you think about it, until Adam and Eve sinned, they weren't getting sick and they weren't dying. So that's just true of who we are. And this is the part where I'm kind of like, this is just kind of my brain thinking, so we, this is more a conversation that I'm having with you guys. This is more like group therapy for me. I'm wondering if the, some of you have gotten sick. Yeah, some of you have died. You've been taking it in an unworthy manner. You were going to anyways. You were sick. You were dying because of the sin that's present in your life. So to take communion apart from Christ, just kind of doubling down on that judgment, kind of acknowledging, hey, I'm sick and I'm dying. And, and you're sick and dying is because of the sin that's present in your life. These are just things that I'm thinking about. You can talk a little bit more about what those could mean in your community groups this week. Do I, I mean, I'm not going to put it past God to drop somebody, to kill somebody right on the spot because they do something in an unworthy manner. I mean, go, go, read, go read Ananias and Sapphira's story if you want to. Like, that didn't work out so great for them. Um, so I'm not putting it past him. But also, I have a feeling there have been people who have been unsaved that have taken communion in our church. And so far, 
Nobody's dropped dead on the spot. Not to say he couldn't. Here's the thing. Communion pictures our need for Christ's broken body more than a good meal to survive. That's, that's, that, to me, is the bottom line for communion. I remember when I was probably like, I don't know, four or five, and mom and dad wouldn't let me take communion yet because they didn't know if I was saved or not. And I'm like, come on, I'm so hungry, like the little bitty like wafer was going to do anything. But it's like, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty. He preached for a long time, I'm bored. And they're like, that's not the point of taking this. It's not meant to fill you up. Honestly, when you, when you take communion here, I mean, we're, we haven't eaten lunch yet. We're going to eat lunch, and we'll actually talk about that in just a second. But, but if you're already hungry and you eat just like a little bite of bread, that's really not going to make you feel better. In fact, it's probably going to make you a little bit more hungry. And I think that's kind of a cool, cool reminder, a cool picture that... That the bread isn't the thing that's sustaining us. The little cup of grape juice that you're dipping the bread in isn't, isn't sustaining us. In fact, it's just revealing just how short-term the effects of that actually are. But the picture, the thing that it's symbolizing, the broken body of Jesus, the spilled-out blood of our Savior, that is the thing that can sustain us. That is the thing that satisfies us. That is the thing that we need far more than just a big piece of bread to eat and a cup of juice. So I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, if it's just a picture, and I I want us to do communion right. I'm not trying to diminish coming up, tearing off the bread. I think that's a good reminder. I think during our response time, that is a perfect thing because it kind of reminds us who it is that we're worshiping, and that's great. But I also wonder if communion could be a little bit more than just the ceremony that we have during worship time. What is it that Jesus said? This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, take this cup. This is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Just as often as you do this. So there's not a prescription of how often should we do communion. We do communion every week. I mean, honestly, we originally put, did communion every week. A, because we didn't want somebody to... I was out of town one week, and that was the one time every three months that we do communion, so I missed communion. We don't want that. We don't want to do it so often that people become desensitized to it, but I think if we're actually teaching communion in the right way, every week is fine. And I would, even, I would even go on to say every meal can be communion when we're gathering together as the body of Christ. Right? He's saying as often as you come together, as often as you break bread, as often as you drink from this cup, do so in remembrance of me. I think this is as much a prescription for how we should eat meals together as it is a particular ceremony that we should offer on a weekly, monthly, quarterly, biannually basis. And here's where I get this. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, 
to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. If I could give you a section of verses that I want to be the set of verses that describes CRC. That's the one. That's it. The one that says they loved each other passionately all the time. They were committed to one another's lives all the time. And they were eaten together all the time. If you haven't figured this out, we at CRC enjoy eating together. That's one of the reasons that we have lunch every Sunday after, after church. It's so that we can come together as the church and share a meal together. Yes, it is a great opportunity to invite people who are walking up and down the street to come in and have a meal with us. But I don't think that's our primary purpose. I don't think that's the original goal. I think the primary purpose is that the Bible says the church was gathering together and eating meals together and loving what Jesus did as they were sharing those meals together. And that's why we gather together, we share meals, we eat together. That's why after on Sunday nights we go over to Amigos and we eat. Again, that's more eating. That's why sometimes maybe in your community groups you have snacks or maybe you do some sort of dinner thing. I don't know. But, but we see this great, this great prescription for get together and eat a meal together. And as you do so, remember who Jesus is and worship God while you are together as the church sharing that meal. To me, that's as much a picture of communion as anything. Communion takes place within community. I think it's not lost on any of us that those two words sound very similar. Because they're basically meaning the same thing. They come from the same place. The church has fought over all the different superstition that regard, regarding how should we eat this bread and how should we drink this and what should be in the cup? Would it, be a would it make it any different if we used white grape juice instead of red grape juice? Or does our bread need to be unleavened? Or does our bread, is it okay if our bread's cut up into little pieces? Or should we pass around one cup and all take a swig out of it at the same time? I'm trying to see who all the OCD people are in the room. The church has fought against the idea of superstition within communion for centuries. But what if the real picture is that it's us coming together to break bread together, to share life together, and do so in a way that is honoring to Christ and the sacrifice that he made? What if the way we ate a meal together was worship? It 
If someone literally saved your life as you walked out the door today, you're walking out, you're not paying attention, you're waving bye to somebody, and there's, there's a semi-truck coming down the road, and somebody saw it and pulled you out of the way, saved your life, literally. The next time you had lunch with them, probably the next hundred times you had lunch with them, you'd be like, I'm still really thankful for this person. They did a really cool thing for me. Let's, I want to honor them. You know what? You get to eat first because, because I was about to get plastered by a semi-truck and that would have been real bad for me. But you saved me and I want to make you... So, so this, this meal, you go first. It's more about you than it is about me in this instance. You would honor them any time you sat down for a meal with them. That's what happened with Jesus. Like the bread, Jesus was broken as a means of saving us. Like the wine, his blood was poured out. No, he is not physically present in the food that we eat during communion. But he is present in the hearts of the church. He is present in the lives of believers. And so we, at every meal, whether it's one where we're just taking symbolically these things during a time of worship, or we're sitting down to eat a baked potato together, He is here, He is present, and we should honor Him as Savior in all of those instances. So, so sometimes it can, I'll be honest, it can become routine, taking communion. Okay, I waited for two verses. I think I've waited long enough. I'm going to go up and take communion now. Now's the time I do it. I do it this way. I pull off a piece of bread. I stick it in. I try as best I can not to get my fingers in the grape juice, and I know who those of you are. Trying to make eye contact with everybody so nobody feels singled out. And that can become routine. That can, that can lose the effect that it has on us. We could be distracted by something else that's going on in our lives. We could be distracted by the song. Maybe it's something new and we don't know the lyrics, and we're, so we're looking at the words and we're walking up and we're distracted as we're taking so we take communion and we walk. That shouldn't become the case. The whole point is that as we take this, as believers, we're remembering Christ's sacrifice. That should not become routine. It should become a habit, but it shouldn't become routine. It shouldn't become meaningless. It shouldn't lose its effect on us. Someone literally died to save your life. Someone literally allowed himself to be broken and his blood to be poured out so that you could be restored to your creator, redeemed and welcomed into the family of God. And so whether it's taking a piece of bread and dipping it in a cup of grape juice while we sing songs, that should affect us. Or whether it's when we sit down to eat a meal together and we're having a conversation, that should be equally as glorifying to God, equally as glorifying to Him. And it should be as much of a worshipful experience if you're here or if you're at Amigos later on tonight. Or if you're sitting at your house with your family on a Tuesday. 
It's community. It's the church coming together. It's us constantly remembering who we are in light of what Christ has done. And that moving us to worship. Why do we want to live that way? Why do we want to take communion in the right way? Why do we want to be moved in such a way that when we take communion, it's it's inspiring us to worship? Because when the church is getting it right, right? End of Acts 2, verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's why we want to get this right. Because it's through the church that God is saving the nations. Just like Caleb preached last week. It's through the church. He doesn't need the church, but he is sure going to use us. And so we need to get these things right. We need to know what it is that we believe. We need to know why it is that we do all of the things that we do. So that through us, through the way that we live, through the way that we represent him, through the way that we worship him, even when we're making a sandwich for lunch to take to work, all of that is us representing our our leaning on him, our, our trusting in him, our being hopeful in him and not reliant on that that sandwich to get us through another day. So let's pray.